0: Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at the highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with the platform to perform. I'm your host, as always, Todd Davidson. And on episode 24 of the Platform to Perform podcast, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome one of my strength and conditioning idols, Dan John. How are you doing, Dan?
1: I'm doing well. I'm trying to get the lighting right. The- I'm not very good at this stuff. Well, okay, there you go. Oh, I look
0: like a million dollars.
1: <laughs> uh, thanks for the invite. and uh, It was nice to know that. Uh, let's give a shout out to our mutual good friend, Jack Lynch. Jack, you're a game changer. It's an honor to be, uh, call you my friend. So,
0: so I first came across your work, Dan, about four years ago when I was interning at the English Institute for Sports. So for um, listeners abroad, that's basically the Olympic Center um, and the hub of GB boxing and GB Paralympic table tennis, but I was given Never Let Go, which is one of your books. And I think science and practice of strength training, um, by zartioski or someone like that. Yeah. Um, but the difference between the applicability of your book is what really struck a chord with me. Um, but for listeners who aren't familiar with your work, do you want to, I know you hate the question, but just, uh, introduce yourself briefly. Well, I'm the youngest of
1: six kids, and I think that's important because uh, it was a military-athletic family, so I was always chasing. I wanted to make my career as an American football player, but uh, I read a book, and one of my heroes threw the discus, and so I started throwing the discus, and that soon became my pay-for-all, my education. You know, here in the United States, we have those scholarships, you know, and I became a pretty good discus thrower, and after I've got my – Masters, I started teaching and volunteering in the weight room for, oh, actually, I actually started as a strength coach in 79. I was a Utah State's uh, track and field strength coach, but I also helped the American football players because, you know, I was a, I knew the lifts better than their coaches. So I started, I I could have, I might have been the first track and field strength coach, you know, Uh, I don't know. I, I. It's certainly possible. I'm in the top few anyway. And in my whole career, I volunteered as a strength coach. And then uh, one day, when strength coaching became more part of normal training, I, I started making that my full time profession. So I went from no money, uh, volunteer positions for, I uh, made a little bit, but I mean, and then to being a full, you know, this is what I do for a living. And uh, I write books. I think I'm on 13, uh, 14, maybe. Uh, I enjoy writing. I enjoy giving workshops. I like I like the weight room. And here we are. I started lifting weights in 1965. And here it is 55, 56 years later. Uh, I'm still lifting weights, you know. And I hope to have that in 15 years when we talk. I still hope to be lifting weights. So there, that's enough. That's plenty.
0: No, that's perfect. That's perfect. And uh, obviously, you've had years and years in the weight room. Um, but one of the main themes in... Uh, constructing the notes of this podcast is uh, epistemology or how do you know what you know Um, so what experiences have you had that have influenced your beliefs with strength training the most in your career well
1: i've got a full youtube video folks called epistemology where i go through this but basically i take there's two i follow the best the first is i find the authorities in the field now not these not a person who lives in some podoc Po dunk hellhole and writes a lot online and claims, nor some coach who claims to have worked with 17,000 Olympians. You know, you see that a lot in my field. I've trained 17,000 Olympians. My coach, Coach Mon, one of the most important discus throwing coaches in the history of the event, probably coached four Olympians. And so, and the reason I raise that is that the, 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 the public will believe all that BS. They, they will believe all that nonsense. So what you need to do is you need to find those coaches that have produced tremendous – you can name the names. You know, like I'm a big – hate him or love him. Charlie Francis, the great sprint coach from Canada. His book, Speed Trap, I think is must-reading for strength coaches, all coaches, because he his, his candor, his – as he goes through and when he goes from – the – Okay, so he brings massage in, and he says massage doesn't lie. And I'm like, wow, that's a, you know, he starts to realize that, for example, that if an athlete, a sprint athlete, a top end sprinter, fast twitch monster, uh, you know, one in a generation, if they get a personal record in anything in a day, the workout is over. Goodbye. And why? Because these guys are the rarest of rare. Uh, my coach, coach mom, you know, uh, completely changed the way the discus was thrown in the world. Uh, he had a very simple formula. You lift three days a week, you throw four days a week for the next eight years. And if you do that and you have any DNA, uh, you'll be, you should be at international levels. And if you're not, well, (laughs) let's (laughs) maybe try another sport. You know, um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of the sport of American football. And my favorite, uh, my favorite coaches aren't the ones who win all the time, but they're the ones who turn programs around. I'm sure you know the same situation in uh, the European sports. I, I always think about the GAA over in Ireland, uh, maybe even cricket, maybe uh, soccer, football. There are certain coaches who can take lesser athletes and win. Those are the ones I always seek out. So number one is authority, people who – when, if Coach Mon says lift three days a week and you lift seven times a week, you're too stupid for me to work with. Okay? And the next would be uh, what we call simply, very simply, deductive logic. Um, deductive logic is basically this. What are the best in the world doing in your sport, in your uh, your goal set? And you take, if you can, in fact, in, in the area of like uh, female body composition, uh, male body composition, powerlifting, Olympic lifting. You can find the 20 best programs. And we are going to see, and what you do is you find out what all of them are doing. And there's your program. For Olympic lifting, it's going to be the snatch, the clean jerk on the front squat. That, that's what all of them are doing. Now, some of these people do high pulls with this or, you know, or do that. But really, you come to certain sports, you see they're doing about the same things. What you'll find very often is that the authorities, the best and the, the best coaches, the, and deductive logic, what the best and brightest are doing, are almost always the exact same thing. The next area that I think is important now that that gives us about eighty percent of what about eighty percent of what I'm going to coach you is is just what we've been doing in discus throwing. What we've been doing literally, uh, yeah. See, I was born in 1957 a program that you would do in 1957 and a program you would do in 2020 to me is going to be about 80% the same. You focus. It's, there's no huge, but those other 20% are important. I kind of think it this way. About 10% should be in, influenced by the best practices of sports science. But did you, I hope Todd, you heard that there was a caveat in there. What was the caveat? The best, the best. And that's the issue I have when, you know, you talk to Jack. He'll say, well, this, this, this. And it's like, great. They did this research with a bunch of 18-year-old neophytes. It doesn't carry over to an elite person who snatches 140 kilos and cleans 180. It's a different ballpark. It's a different world. So my science, I, I tend to go back to the German studies of the 1940s, 1950s, the work of Tom Delorme, the great American uh, surgeon who was trying to repair uh, American uh, soldiers after D-Day, after the war in Europe, uh, I tend to go back to those two first for science, and then what I look for is people like like Brian Mann. He's now at University of Miami here in the United States, who took the Delorme protocol and reapplied it to the to 20, well, tw- let's just say 2020, and said, yeah, it still works but we're a little bit better here. So to me, that would be sports science for me. Does that make sense? You you take the tradition, you look at it and say, well, can we make this a little better? You know, not throw it all out and make up some silly study and and prove it. And then the last about 10% is phenomenology and phenomenology. It comes from the field of theology but let me give my great example this is how I learned it from my, my colleague, Susan Northway. She said, um, a couple of us go into uh, a city, a, 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 a town, a small town, and we're thirsty. So um, I go over to the well, and I look down, and I say, there's water in the well. You look down, and you say, oh, and there's some stones at the bottom. Jack Lynch looks down, and he says, did you see the frog? on the stone so todd the question is this which one of us is right all of you well but so thank you so phenomenology is this weird little concept that you sometimes have to try things to find out whether or not they work and so if something new comes along and it's fascinating uh, as we speak i'm i'm working on a, a thing for my uh, I'm working on a thing from my website. So this is my 1990, 1988 journal. And a thing came along, and uh, in the middle of this thing, I um, I try a new program. It's a six-week training program. I feel six weeks in the off-season. Is play, you know, try all kinds of new things. There's nothing wrong with it. Well, it failed miserably. Okay? It, and, but here's the thing. It, I hope you understood that. I tried it. A couple of the athletes I worked with, we tried it, and it was just a waste of six weeks. But it's okay. It's six weeks in the offseason. It's okay. You know, you got to try things. Because you know what? If it would have worked, it we would have thrown farther or, or been better. So phenomenology is when you try, you taste new things when they come out. But here's the thing you gotta understand, Todd. We have to have that feedback and discussion. So this year we're gonna try it. Um, we're going to try the, a different thing in the discus technique. We're going to try it. Well, three or four or five of 10 of us get together and say, I'm going to try this. Uh, let's give it five or six weeks. Cause that's about, that's a good, that's good. You, you know, you're trending after about six weeks, you know, it's not perfect, but you get an idea. Well, after six weeks, one or two of us are like going, this is the most important thing I've ever done. One or two of us are like, I got nothing out of it. And the rest of us are like, and then we talked to each other and the guys who got nothing out of it weren't actually doing what we said. And the guys who got everything out of it followed it like a a, a religious uh, tradition. And the rest of us were like, okay, we'll take it more seriously, but you have to have that feedback loop. You got to discuss when you're with an authority There's also a feedback loop too, and very often what you what you find out is my ego keeps getting in the way of my success. Uh, When you when you find out what the best and the brightest are doing, and you decide they're all going, they're all marching left. I'll be a contrarian and go right. Well, that's great, except for the point is, well, (laughs) you might also get it really wrong. Okay, so. Now, I'm a contrarian when it comes to a lot of things. I like If everyone's going this way, I like to go to the opposite. But it's because, let's make sure you understand this, even if you think I'm going in the opposite direction, I'm still focusing on what the tradition is doing. I'm just trying to add usually just one new thing. Uh, like when powerlifting got big in the throws, I took the Olympic lifts even more serious. To the fact that I finally figured out that back squats uh, had an inverse relationship with my performance, which is when I say, I still say it loud. And it's like, you know, it doesn't make sense, except that's what happened. So does that, is that helpful? Is yeah.
0: That, is that- yeah. Very helpful. Very helpful. Uh, you've almost covered the next question I was going to ask. so I'm going to skip on to the next one. So in terms of things that you don't believe in um, based on some of your work, I know one of the things that is, arguably contrarian to most traditional strength and conditioning coaches so you don't believe in peaking can you let the listeners know a little bit more about that
1: have you ever peaked an athlete
0: uh well i'd like to think i've peaked my well, peaked in the commas i've had good performances for my powerlifting meets that i've competed in and i've set personal bests in that sense yes good for you
1: did you see how many qualifiers you had to throw in there
0: <laughs> yes yes <laughs> Most
1: of my best performances, can
0: I swear in your podcast yeah, but but means you do uh, I exactly
1: well. the story you know I talk about arousal levels well there 's a bar on the platform. if I make this lift i 'm the national champion. If I miss this lift, I take fourth place. My wife walks up to me and says uh, we couldn 't afford this trip, you know we we poor as church mice uh back then, and uh yeah, I know she goes, I don't think you understand. We can't afford this trip. I go, honey, I know. then she gets up close to my face and goes, make the fucking lift. And the head judge later said, it was kind of funny because he'd never seen anyone come up to the platform so fast because that's scared to death in my life. (laughs) So, you know, to me, to me, that is what, to me peaking is when you didn't forget your shorts. You didn't forget your, uh, your card, your your powerlifting, you know, GB powerlifting card. You've got a good, you know, you you you've got a good night's sleep a few nights ago, and you're fine. You had an excellent bowel movement the morning of. Uh, you're you're having a good day. Everything's trending in the right direction, and it comes down to the last deadlift. And I say to you, Todd, I know you're peaking for a 390 kilo <clears throat> deadlift, but to win, you need a 400. If you turn to me and say, well, Jeepers, uh, I just want to get the 390 and feel good about myself, you're not one of my athletes. Even though the peak said 390, we're putting four to win this damn thing. So it's not that I don't believe in it. I just never see it happen. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, have uh, you ever heard of Bigfoot? Bigfoot. Yeah. I got no issues if you believe in Bigfoot. But, you know, sooner or later, someone's got to show me a Sasquatch. I got no issues with the Loch Ness Monster, but, you know, it'd be nice if, you know, I could pat one on the forehead, you know. (laughs) Uh, So it's like I have no issues with your peaking program, and uh, my friend Marty Gallagher does a great job with it. But to me, a checklist, appropriate levels of arousal, appropriate levels of tension, the appropriate heart rate, um, uh, taking care of the little things 16, 18 weeks out, uh, so, you know, when I compete, I fly first class, my hotels at Hilton, uh, I get a bigger room than I need, because those small things, and by the way, I buy those plane tickets, the day I send my check in for the meet, I buy the plane tickets. Because I don't want to be sitting around the week before the Nationals going, oh, hell, I need a... Uh, now, I've in my new book, Attempts, I talk about overcoming uh, a bad hotel one night. And feeling sorry for myself and then breaking the American record in the weight pentathlon. But it took a mental change for me to break through that. I don't want to do that anymore. No. It's possible to do it. It's possible to do it. It's easier to just show up and have everything aligned. Uh, and I always tell people, uh, are you in a relationship? Yes. Is it a good one?
0: Yes. Very good.
1: How, how much planning did you, get in to to meet this person?
0: Uh, initially none, <laughs> <laughs> initially none.
1: Every person I know who's met the love of their life, now it, it's still, it's funny, for a long time I had a guy push back at me because he met his wife on match.com, they, they just got divorced. So, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> well it's actually, per, you know, you can go in and, you know, use a spreadsheet and all this stuff. But generally, most of us meet the love of our life kind of um, serendipitously, you know. And I believe that superior performance, it's difficult to plan it out. Otherwise, every single athlete at the Olympic trials would get seasonal bests anyway, if not personal bests. And yet, they don't. So it's not that I'm against it, Todd. i It's like Bigfoot. I'm not against peaking. Just, it'd be nice for me to see the evidence that it works. Now, I'm sure some little uh, squid billy who's listening right now is scrambling through their Soviet textbooks, which, of course, uh, the difference between a Soviet textbook on strength training and Grimm's fairy tales is that I kind of almost think that a wolf can talk. Oh, sorry, did I just say that I think the Soviet texts are, are fairy tales? Yes, I do. I've had too many good friends from the Soviet Union tell
0: me, oh, yeah. And we knew
1: you Americans would
0: read all this. <laughs> there's, a, there's another good point you meant in terms of peaking, um, and you kind of nearly touched on it then. But in your latest attempts book, you talk about the hangover rule. The hangover rule. Yeah, finished it yesterday. But, uh, yeah, I suppose that also feeds into what you're talking about.
1: Well, I don't want to name names, but well, John Powell, the world record holder in the discus, he vomited in a rose garden at, when he got out of his car because he was so hungover. Uh, he was trying to get a nap when the meat director said, Yeah, the winds are good today. John's first two warmups were terrible. Well, he felt terrible, but they went fairly far. And he was as surprised as everybody when he got a new world record. Uh, the world record in a couple other throwing events who I know because I told, they told me were are hung over. And I think what happens sometimes in life, it's that whole serendipity that when you meet the, the person of your dreams, it all, you, if you try to force it now uh, to the listeners, gentle listeners, it doesn't happen in the vertical jumps, like the high jump in the pole vault, because you know the height, but it happens a lot. You know, when Bob Beeman broke, uh, Uh, Jesse Owens, long-standing world record. He had no idea he had done it because he was used to feet and inches, and it was in meters. And it's only when somebody came over and just said, you broke the world record by about three feet that he started to broke that, well, two feet, two and a half feet, um, uh, uh, 0.75 meters, which is a long ways. This happens a lot. You know, um, and I'm not saying that every athlete who's ever performed highly is hung over. But it's the idea that we have to put our arms around the idea that many of ha- us have these amazing efforts out of nowhere. My personal record, the snatch happened because at the weightlifting meet I was at, they didn't have small plates. This is before the, we had the full, the new one kilo rule. This is back when it was a 2.5 kilo rule. So by the time I was trying to break our state record, and by by the time we got through it all, I just said, well, 142.5. Well, my PR uh, going into that meet was 130. I went from 130 to 142.5 because we couldn't figure out the plates. And I told Dave Turner, just put it on. I'll make it. And I did. So sometimes you just can't plan things, man. I, I, and I, I, I'm very comfortable with it. I'm very comfortable with that.
0: And on that subject, there was, oh, the, the name eludes me, but there was a German weightlifter, I think in Beijing 2008, who... He uh, died. Yes. And he,
1: and he took a lift, dedicated her, and he became the gold medalist. Yeah. Was he able to make that lift? Well, not according to the peaking structure, uh, but according to a a memoriam to his dead wife, you do. And that is a beautiful story. If you can, if you can find the video of that, that'd be a nice thing to tag onto this podcast. And if you don't cry, gentle
0: listener, you have no soul. Absolutely. Absolutely. And on the subject of, so you said about your wife getting in your face, obviously we've mentioned, uh, the example of losing somebody and throwing all that into a lift, how on earth do you, dare I say, mimic that level of arousal? How do you train to uh, put yourself in that mindset?
1: Well, this is, this is why I think, I don't want to pat myself too hard on the back, but this is why I think you want a good coach. So one of the ways I do it, um, one of the big problems you'll have, Todd, in, in, in the field of throwing is you get three attempts and then the top eight or nine go into the finals for three more. One of the things I practice harder than probably anybody is we mentally go, you fouled your first attempt, you fouled your second attempt. We call this a one-throw competition. Folks, if you go to danjohn.net and pull off a book called A Contrarian Approach to the Discus Throw, it's free, and I explain it better there. So, and then what I do, for example, Todd, with you, I would have you sitting in a chair and uh, I'd have you say, okay, Todd, you're up. And then I'd say, wait, sit sit, whoa, 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 sit back down. And then it's because that's what I'm attracting sometimes uh, here in the United States. Uh, they'll make the discus throwers sit so they can see the start of the 200 meters. So right in the middle of my competition, I'm getting ready to go. My last and my third throw, I've had two fouls, tons of pressure. And now they tell me to sit, which of course gives me even more pressure. And so one of the ways what I, I do it personally is that I restrict uh, I restrict the rules. Instead of six throws, you get one throw. Uh, when I in American football, it's funny. I had a quarterback who never picked up on this, but you're only supposed to have eleven men on defense. Well, in practice, I used to run defenses with fourteen men. And then in games he would say, I just can't believe how good our practice defense must be because our guys are wide open. And I'm like, did you not notice the extra three? And then I realized, you know, maybe I shouldn't overcoach this. Let's just let us just let him think that. So, um, oh, there's a lots, lots and lots of ways to do it in every sport. Um, but what you're trying to do is increase the – okay, so m- – m- arousal and tension are basically the same thing in a sense. Okay. Tension is the physical that I'm squeezing my fists right now. I'm building up a lot of tension. If I lick my finger and stick it in an outlet, I'll, that's a 10. If I'm smoking dope in a hot tub, that's a one. We got to figure out where your sport is in the middle. Discus throwing is about a four shot. putting's about an eight, seven deadlifts are probably nine. Um, every coach, this is something I talked with Jack about, you know, what's the tension level of a dive? Well, you can't do a dive like you do a deadlift, but there is going to be moments during a dive where you probably want to increase the tension and immediately blow it all off. So, so one of the things we would actively practice with divers might be to do a plank on the diving board, shake all the tension off, you know, literally on the diving board, shake it all off, wiggle your jaw and then do a dive and see if you can uh, figure out the tension faster and faster and faster. So if you find yourself at the world championships and you have too much tension, you can either do a plank, increase it and blow it off or just blow it off. Uh, it's twin is the mental side, which we call arousal. Now, um, you know, with my students at st Mary sometimes i 'll talk about you know when it comes to the sexual act if you have too much arousal nothing's going to happen if you have too little arousal nothing might happen you got to find the right arousal and the work way to ruin it for the other person is ask them if they're aroused and that will usually end the session in discus throwing you can't have a ton of arousal because you have to you're trying to get that stretch reflex at the end you're trying to do a bow and arrow to finish well To deadlift, you want a lot of arousal because you have to lock and load and just stay on. In fact, my dentist, you know, when I first met my new dentist, Seth, this is a while ago now, he asked me if I lifted weights. And I said, you know, I'm thinking because of my pythons and my, you know. And I go, yeah. He goes, yeah, I can tell because of your teeth. Well, I should have been wearing uh, a mouthpiece lifting for all these years because the way we lift is so hard on the teeth. Well, I didn't know that. I, I didn't know that. So these, this, this is how, so what we do is we consciously practice. So the one throw competition is an arousal drill, uh, doing a plank or an isometric and then shaking it off would be a tension drill. And my job as your coach, Todd, is to get to is for you to dance with both of those in a training session.
0: Yeah, I like that a lot. My uh, Funny, enough, my coach, we discussed a similar notion and he said we were imagining what kind of jumps we'd take in a powerlifting meet if you had two attempts, not three. Because typically, obviously, the first one is just something easy you can get any time. Excellent. Keep going. Oh, so uh, we said, well, obviously, you've then got a, You've got your easy opener, but then it's either you go too heavy and you bust or do you play it somewhat safe? Because you know you're going to make your opener. So then it's like, do you make a slightly riskier opener in case you miss your second slash third attempt? Can you see what you just did there? Yeah. See,
1: to me, so I did the one jump competitions with high jumpers and we had a girl who could jump. uh, I don't know what it is in meters. I'm sorry. I'm not very good with meters. I
0: was going to say you're good with kilos and pounds. I know that much.
1: Yeah, and uh, so we're. She probably. Let's just say we'll, we'll just throw some numbers up, okay? So uh, her, everyone else in the team could jump 1.5 meters, and she could jump 1.8. Okay, What's doing the one jump competition. She put the bar up to 1.55. Well, you know what? So. What I wanted her to do was, you know, I want her at 175, you know, I want her to, but no, no, she just wanted to beat the terrible other jumpers we had on the team. And it was really uh, an interesting moment as a coach when I realized that this, this athlete didn't have the, I'll stop right there. But uh, you understand the point. And I, I like the idea of a single lift competition. Or that would go fast.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it'd certainly make meets a lot easier.
1: Well, I tell you, that would go
0: fast. One
1: snatch, one clean and jerk, one squat, one bench, one deadlift. But here's the thing I want you to think about here, Todd. It's not, it's not how fast the competition goes. It's the amount of uh, random access memory you've got to roll through to figure out what is that one lift. You know, I'm a. I've turned into a, a uber pansy in my elderly years as an Olympic lifter. I mean, I used to open pretty heavy. Uh, my coach and I were joking about how, in 1991, my openers were usually. Uh, this is after the 142. I would open 130, 165. Yeah, those are my openers. Now I think I open it. 60 and 70, you know, I just, <laughs> cause I want to get the lift on the platform, you know? And then I jump, I make big jumps after that, you know? And part of the reason is, is in 1991 when I was in my thirties, you know, I was just, I was just a bag of spit and piss, you know, I was ready to take on the world. And now I'm like, yeah, I don't want to get hurt. I, nothing worse than hurting your elbow or you know, I don't, I don't wake up tomorrow and chase the grandkids around. So yeah. So, so I would like you to think about that and talk to your your, your athletes about a one-lift powerlifting meet. And I tell you something. In fact, don't even – just do this. Show up. Show up and print out some cards. Okay, guys, we're going to do a one-lift powerlifting contest. Write down the one lift you're going to take on the platform. You know, if Bobby benches, you know, 200 and his, his lift is 100, you get a sense – you, have a, you instantly have a sense of where that athlete is with their confidence, their ego. I find, I think this is really an interesting idea.
0: Yeah. I'm also thinking about, because uh, with young athletes, I typically use, I mean, don't have equipment, but something like a standing long jump. But obviously when kids, one kid beats another kid, then it's, like, oh, can we have another go? Can we have another go? And uh, of course, as a strength coach part of you, especially, so for example, I used to work at an all girls school. So I wanted to create that environment where they saw the benefits of the lifting, um, but then equally, you look through the session like we spent half an hour just going back and forth. Whereas actually thinking like you get one jump, if you fall backwards and I can't take a mark, then tough luck, we're not doing it for another couple of weeks. Like a,
1: like a, we used to have this great little test. It was called the. It was from President John F. Kennedy. Was the, it was ten events, and uh, I like your idea here. So that you only get one shot at some of them. You know, the single, you know, how many push-ups you can do in a minute, or how many pull-ups you can do, those are you know, obviously you can't do much with those. But yeah, I like your heads out on that. Yeah, that's good. So as a I so it takes us right back to your first question. Um, one of the things I learned from working and with the best in just about every field is that your personal genetics rarely matters after a certain point. Um, it's like with special, special forces, can you just keep putting one foot in front of the other? That's sometimes all it is. Um, so it it is the mental side. And, um, and that is a hard thing to really grasp. Uh, that's why I'm such a big believer. Like, uh, You know, I've got uh, Jonas Ulrich's book here on circuit training and he's a big believer. So he did a a fitness test with his athletes where they did a number of gymnastics and jumping movements for time and then followed it with free throws. So they were coming into the free throws tired. Well, I like that because the measurement you make on your athletes when they're huffing and puffing, you know, generally little Billy... When you give him five free throws, he hits four. But when he's huffing and puffing, he hits none. That's a good indicator that the physical side, he has a – his skill set is based on being fresh. But that's a radically different skill set than when you're exhausted. And if you're playing a game like soccer, football, rugby, uh, basketball, probably volleyball, who gives a damn if you win the warm-ups? If you got the best vertical jump in the first minute, okay, you win the first minute. I want to know what you're like 60 120 minutes from now.
0: Yeah, as you like to say warm-ups is warm-ups.
1: Well, that comes from Wilt Chamberlain, a very famous American basketball player. Warm-ups is warm-ups, yeah. That's a good
0: cool. You uh, you mentioned a few minutes ago about uh, your dentist remarking about your teeth. So the uh Next thing I was going to ask is, uh, I'm trying to remember which of your books it's mentioned in. I think it might be Never Let Go. But it says that you will refuse to program for athletes who can't commit to flossing their teeth. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on that? Well,
1: you get to the point as a coach where you just suddenly hit the wall. It's like, I mean, and, and what happens is, and it's going to happen every, for everybody who's listening to coaches, is you fall in love On day one, you fall in love with the kid, the athlete, who does everything the best. And you say to this athlete, you could be world class. Well, guess what that usually means? You're going to be absolutely disappointed. It's not if you're going to be disappointed, it's when. I want the athlete who's all in. I want the athlete who flosses their teeth, um, watered every meal, um, shows up with all the equipment where it should be, If we're supposed to wear black shirts to practice and this kid shows up in a neon green shirt, okay, listen, this kid who might be a super athlete might win you some games, but that same kid will cost you championships. And that is the hardest lesson I've learned. Uh, You know, there's an American football coach. uh, I can see his face right now. Uh, This is a while ago. He used to hire an assistant coach, to sit in the stands. And what he did is he put up a barrier in front of the practice field. So if you can walk, okay, so here's the direct route to the football field. And he put up a barrier with a little thing that says, please go around. And he have an assistant in the stands, and every athlete who went underneath the barrier, he'd write down their number, 73, 58, 26. And what he'd quickly find, great. Coach Graham, what he quickly found is the guys who didn't have the discipline to walk those extra three steps didn't have the discipline on the field either. And I always thought, now, if this is true or not, I'm just nice as I could be. I mean, this could be everything I just told you is a lie. But, boy, I tell you, it makes sense. Uh, When you work with athletes, very soon you notice that those who – Miss the little things are those who are break your heart later on. I don't like the show, uh, but it's it's an American show on Netflix called Last Chance You, Last Chance University, and I struggle with the show. I try to watch it because you know it's in my it's in my field. It's a, it's a show that people ask me about, so I feel like I should know it and it's it's these junior colleges now i'm a junior college athlete so i have to be careful i've got great respect for jc's but these are schools that look for these pick up these great athletes who've been kicked out of other schools and when you watch the show about halfway through every episode you just want to kill these kids uh how many opportunities can you blow and still keep going now obviously they also fill i mean you got a hundred people in the program and they focus on four or five and they love the worst stories. You know, in fact, in one of the episodes, I think two of the guys killed somebody or something, but I know it sounds weird, Todd, but what it, when you're trying to get into that area where only a few human beings have ever been, you know, it's, it's very small. The other day, uh, a friend of mine let me know that I'm in the top, like, 1,400 of discus throwers in world history. And I thought to myself, you know, this, they only had my 58-meter throw, but if you've ever seen someone throw 58 meters, it's a long ways. And I'm, like, in the top 1,400 or so. 1,400 other human beings – I've thrown farther than me, And I just felt terrible about it. <laughs> and then I realized that, dude, being top two thousand when there's seven billion people on planet Earth now, and of course lots and lots of people before us, that's okay. And I was like, well, what could I have done to get the thirteen? Yeah, <laughs> that was my first thought, you know. <laughs> uh, so when you're looking at when you're looking at getting into that. Uh, I recommend to all your listeners, it's free now on something called YouTube. But he's the guy that changed my life. When I got back from the Middle East, I had a liver parasite. I wasn't doing well. I was really hurt. Everything that could go wrong in life kind of hit me. I was living in a, I had a fold out, you know, I don't know if you guys, what you guys call them there, but it's a couch that folds into a bed.
0: Yes, yes. The name escapes me, but I know exactly what you mean.
1: Not the highest level. My car would never start again. I owe everything that could go wrong went wrong. And I started listening to his name is Earl Nightingale and it's called lead the field. And one of the things he says is don't try to be number one, try to be in the top 5%. And I tell you, it was a game changer for me, not only as a coach, but as a a human person. And so what I've always tried to do is maybe I'm not the best, but I'm in the top 5% of several fields right now. I work very hard on it. It's very important. I'm in the top 3% of authors of all time for book sales. Um, almost every one of my books makes that. Yeah, that's, that's not bad. You know, I'm pretty sure I'm in the top 5% of disc stores of all time. I kind of have a hard time thinking I wouldn't be. Um, sounds weird. To get to that top 5%, you don't have to do anything that special, but you have to do the three rules, right? you got to show up, keep going, and ask questions like you're doing today. And that's the difference. And I, as I say, sometimes you see the memes of me all the time, um, keep going. And, and, and then the little line I always said, that's what most people don't do. They don't keep going. You know, they, everyone, so many people quit way too soon. So, I mean, that's so that's why the floss thing is so small. But it's just a – oh, sorry. I'm boiling some water if you hear that. I apologize. Yeah, no problem. Um, it's funny about things that – because if you're not flossing daily, you're probably not – there's other things. You're not taking care of good sleep hygiene. You're not eating your vegetables. You're not, you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not. And six weeks into it, You've got a stupid injury from being stupid. You don't feel good because you didn't take care of your basic health. And even though you might be the greatest athlete I've ever encountered, you're going nowhere.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, it's like whenever I do my PE lessons and you'll be like, right, who has a bottle of water with them? And uh, most hands will go up. And you're like, who's got it with them at the field now? And then some hands go down. And you're like, well, what good is it in the changing room?
1: Well, or, you know, well, yeah, we can go on forever. Okay, good, good. That We made the point.
0: <laughs> okay, so my next question is, um, how do we help, uh, so I'm going to specifically ask about children or youth athletes, whatever. So 11 to 16 years old, how do we help kids develop just the idea of doing a habit, if that makes sense?
1: Well, one of the things I do now and I think it's in attempts is, as I note that you are the sum of your habits. Now it's much easier for me to say that to an overweight 40 year old. You, it's not my fault. You're overweight. (laughs) You, you you worked hard on getting there, but how do you teach good habits? Well, I don't, you know, I'm no expert on this. I'm not, I'm sorry, Todd, because it's, it's, I don't work with as much anymore, but one of the things my athletes who who give me a lot of feedback and I'm not I shouldn't even say athletes my students who give me feedback is that what helped them was my consistency um, one of the things I recommend if you're a personal trainer is that you you have a, a few minutes of when you first get there uh, every, you do a warm-up they, they do this at Mark Fisher Fitness, and I like it very much uh, you can ever can have a name tag, but you do it you do a warm-up and then you take three or four minutes aside where everybody introduces themselves. The last time I was at Mark Fisher Fitness, I said, I'm, the three questions were, What's your name? Where are you from? What's your favorite breakfast cereal? And my answer was, I'm Dan John. I'm from Murray, Utah. And I don't, don't eat cereal. I fast. But if I did eat cereal, it'd be crack and oat bran. And we all laughed. You do the workout. And then at the end of the workout, you hand out floss sticks to every one of your people, and while everybody's huffing and puffing, you go to the board and you talk about the importance of sleep hygiene. You talk about the importance of drinking water every meal. Here's the funny thing. When people are tired, they listen really, really, really well. But the most important thing is you. Uh, You have to be on time. You have to look professional. If you have a rule, you got to stick by it. Uh, Don't be like the who, where any rule, I'll break it. Okay. Even though I love the who I disagreed with that. Okay. So, and I know it sounds all strange and crazy, but we, it's, I have a good friend. I just saw him a couple of days ago, Tim card. And he just talked, he talked to me one time about the importance when raising kids. He has no children, by the way, but he's a, he's a school teacher, a Dean of discipline, all this stuff. And he said that the importance of, this is who, in this family, uh, this is what we do. So in my house, we had a menu for dinner. We have a chore, a nightly chores list. You do certain chores on certain days. And what wins kids over is consistency. And what loses kids is inconsistency. And so, you know, I always say that repetition is the mother of implementation. You've got to say the same things every day. It wouldn't be terrible for you to have a checklist of 10 items with 10 short talks you give if it's 5 days a week so that by the 3rd week you're saying the dental floss talk again but you're also going to expand on it this time and talk about keeping the tongue clean and going to the dentist maybe every couple of once a year have a dentist do this all the time I've had dentists come to my weight class they hand out those little kits to all the students you know They'll do it, or just, you know, uh, and they're very good about it. Have someone from, uh, we call it Red Cross in the United States, come in and talk about um, safety uh, and blood donations. Uh, It's pretty simple, and you can just expand on it, but I will tell you this, Todd, have 10, have 10 big points, and do your best to make those 10 better and better and better. I taught an all-girls weightlifting class, which was fascinating, and we had a Well, they all eat cereal here in the States for breakfast. So we had a contest to see who can make the healthiest cereal for breakfast. And uh, it was kind of fun because I think the winner had like three or four different high fiber ones blended together. And by God, it actually tasted really good. So, but that would be a fun thing. And we were, it's funny because I emailed the company and they sent out tons of brochures and about, 80 of those little teeny taster bags and so it didn't cost me anything and they got I, I don't know if they threw it all away but it's just that's just an idea. Man.
0: And uh, just going back to your uh, latest book Attempts so one of the things that was in there that I really quite liked because people in strength and conditioning physical education often have conflicting or differing views as to what the quote unquote fundamentals are, uh, but you talked about the basics of human experience, which I quite liked and how um, I can't remember whose work you were paraphrasing, um, but I quite liked it. Could you just expand on that? No, help me out. I, I, okay. So you've got um, pursuit uh, attack.
1: Oh, Herbert.
0: Yes. Yeah, that's the, the one.
1: Herbert, the, uh, the French guy. Yeah. He was, uh, it's a terrible story. Uh, <laughs> he was, he was on a boat, And a volcano went off on an island. And they went in, this French boat went in to find survivors. And he began to pick up on – Herbert started to pick up on certain things, Uh, if I don't mind me swearing. But when shit comes down, uh, it's too late to find out how to swim or ride a bike or climb a wall. And so he put together this very simple thing. And that, to me, that chapter by itself might be your template for coaching your young athletes. do you have bicycles? Do all your athletes, Can everyone ride a bike? Can every kid swim? And in fact, I would work. Do you have? Do you have a headmaster? Do you have a principal? What do you call them?
0: Uh, headmaster. Uh, well, headmistress. Uh, the school that I'm at. But yes, <laughs> headmistress has a different meaning here. Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well maybe, well, maybe I'll visit your school. <laughs> Thank you, headmistress. <laughs> <laughs> So it would be a good idea, I mean, find out what kids in the school can't ride a bike or swim and, you know, have those kids uh, put together some kind of thing with a local pool where they're given swim lessons because that's a lifetime skill. Um, you know, basically, when you look at what parkour is, parkour is just basically all of what he said. By the way, if you get a chance, put parkour into your, uh, into your school. Uh, now, at my school, we had a park course. Which is the fancier one? Uh, There's a name. uh, The Swiss have a very fancy name for it, but uh, it's where you you walk, jog, or run from station to station. One station has push-ups. One station has step-ups. One station has shoulder stretch, uh, monkey bars. Uh, To me, that is the best thing. That got to be the best training. But uh, a, a friend of mine one time came in, and we had we had those you know those school benches, the ones that have. So it's a table. Yeah. And then you've got the seats and it's all one piece. Yeah, He told me that was the best training device I had in the whole campus. So uh, so you you run at it and you go across it this, the long way. You run at it and you go across it the short way. You run at it and you try to leap over it. You run at it and you, and I'm like, that's a whole curriculum right there. So put together those things uh, about pursuit, innovation, um, hide and go seek. is that, does that? Yes. you yep. guys have yep. hide and go seek? I, I'm firmly convinced saying members of my family, uh, we're a military family. Hide and go seek uh, is evasion 101. Uh, the game of tag tag is a brilliant game. Um, if you get groups of five to eight, and, I don't know, just make that they're, they're fun and they're crazy and they're simple but they've got great values taken seriously, you know? Yeah. Thank, thank you for the reminder. Uh, when you said it, it didn't, it just didn't, didn't click. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I like, I mean, as soon as I read it, I just thought, wow, imagine, um, I don't know what it's like in the States, but uh, physical education in this country in uh, primary school. So from ages six to 11 uh, is fundamental should be fundamental movements. But then from 11 to 16, 18, we just go into a sport model. And, uh, most, we have the same issue. yeah. And when I read, when I read that in attempts, I thought, wow, imagine having a curriculum where I don't know, rather than, uh, rather than term one doing football and basketball, you might have uh term one. We're going to do pursuits with, um, sprinting or walking or whatever. And we're going to uh, learn some kind of martial art and building it that way instead.
1: Oh, if you, well, you could start easily. I mean, you could start with basic tumbling uh, basic tumbling and sprint drills. I tell you one thing: if you teach your kids uh, appropriate technique in sprinting and tumbling, you're going to have some superior athletes uh, not long. Um, and yeah, if your if your headmistress uh, doesn't mind, uh, we have here in the states we have these uh, for American football. We have these pads, and one of the things I used to do was teach my my all female class. I used to teach them how to fight. Yes. And one of the things I taught them was, listen, you're in trouble, and what we did is it was, it's the drill. And it's just when you, you just march forward with these tiny arm strikes, boom, 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 and you're pushing your opponent back. I had several girls cry doing this drill. I later found out that they had issues in their past that this was, A, a release, and, B, they wished they would have known this stuff earlier. So we can prevent all kinds of things by teaching them to fight. And there are, hey, I know, gentle listeners, I am am not a hawk. I am not a believer in war. By the way, families who are military hate war, just so you know, uh, because we see it. But there are bad people in this world and you've got to be able to evade them and when it comes down you've got to have a you've got to have give yourself one more chance you know uh as it says in the, in the Knowles credo die biting <laughs> yeah it's,
0: <laughs> it's brilliant it's funny what well, you mentioned about military so uh, me my original sport was boxing and i keep well i'll say about boxing in schools and uh <laughs> People who, similar to, like you were saying, people who don't know the military think military people love wars. People who, for example, have done a martial art think martial arts people must like violence. It's like, no, it's teaching you controlled aggression, when to use your head, and when to use a certain skill set.
1: Yeah, well, that's that great line out of, uh, is it uh, the original? Uh, oh, Ralph Macchio, Macchio uh, Karate Kid. This is the, isn't it? it no, that's, I'm, I'm sorry. It's from Peaceful war. This is the most important thing to learn in martial arts. And if you're listening, I'm extending my hand to Todd so he can shake hands. <laughs> Make a friend. That's the best, that's the best defense there is. Yes.
0: Exactly. Uh, but, exactly.
1: Yeah. So if, if you could, if you, if you could work out, um, and if you don't, uh, um, if you want, at the end of this, email me, and I'll send you my my list of tumbling, uh, which I th- taught to all my kids. And By the way, the more the, when, not only is it s- teaching them th- to stop from getting hurt falling, it also makes for superior athletics. And, boy, if you want good mobility work, go do 15 to 20 forward rolls and get back to me on
0: stretching. Yeah. You'll loosen up. And equally, even on, even on that subject, I think – how many times I've seen, uh, I mean, I don't want to use the word lazy because it sounds a bit too negative. But when I see coaches, for example, send their kids for, I don't know, a lap warm up and they've done that same lap for five years of physical education. You think, Jesus, like do some rolling on the ground or some get back ups. It's like, right. Well, there's your cardio and you're still developing other different skills as well.
1: Well, you can ask uh, Adrian Craddock lives over in Galway, not far from you. And the first day, uh, maybe it was the second day he trained with me when he was my intern, we did tumbling. Now, he's a Western Irish guy, so white has a whole different meaning with those guys. I couldn't believe I made him whiter. I, and we brought, I brought the bucket over to him, so I thought I was going to vom. Now, it's not from I beat him to death. It's because of the vestibular system. But once you get that vestibular system online, you are much safer when it comes to things like falls and, well, even collisions and traffic accidents, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think if it's. I can't remember. I don't know if it was one of your books or somebody else's book, but saying the, I think it's the Japanese have the lowest risk of deaths from falling just because they sleep on the ground and by nature of it, they get up and down off the floor every day.
1: Well, that's why the get you mentioned the get back up drill. And if you don't mind the show notes, would you cut and paste yeah. that? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a drill, folks, called the get back up drill, and he's going to share that with you. Uh, I also have a YouTube video of it, but. Uh, People say, well, this is simple. And I say, absolutely. And when you do 40 rounds of it, check your heart rate, my friend. You know, and you're getting up and down off the ground. So yeah, I think that's a very uh, insightful point. Yeah, very much.
0: And it's, I, again, I'm sure it must be one of yours, but uh, one of my assessments I'll do if I'm training an older client will literally be your series of 25 variations of get back ups with left hand on left knee, right hand on right knee. And I would right. just tickle or cross which ones they can't make. And I said, look, if you get 16 out of 25 on day one and you get 23 out of 25 in week eight, then whatever we're doing, we're doing something right.
1: If I could change anything from my book, Can You Go? My assessments, <laughs> my assessments uh, if you do pass and you're up to number four, I would still keep the two-minute plank. I would still do the farmer walk. I would still do the standing long jump but I would do the 25 get back up. And like you said, I would be looking at two things, probably have a heart rate monitor on there. And then number two, like you said, a qualitative analysis of their issues getting up and down, you know, not necessarily not being completely, you suck, but more like this thing kept coming up. You kept going left knee, right. Knee. You kept using your left, your right hand, your, there was no you were very one-sided you were very yeah yeah i, I think you, you you know you look terrible getting up off of your back you know
0: yeah you know, yeah so. and uh i think it was my dad's partner who said it which made me uh, chuckle he said you know you're getting old when like for example if your grandchildren fell over you wouldn't say they've had a fall you just say they've fallen over whereas when you get old you've had a fall and i was thinking at what point in your life does that become a thing
1: You know, it's funny, uh, my Instagram account today, this is a, it's funny you say that. Um, In fact, I don't want to get too emotional, but it does. It's one of those things. Um, So I I didn't even know how it would impact me this much. But today's Instagram, uh, somebody asked me, what would I tell a young Dan John? And one of the things I said, and I'm getting all emotional, um, is you never know the last time you'll pick up your child. And so a couple weeks back, I went to a party with my daughters at my daughter's house, and I picked them both up because I wanted it to be in 2020, not in 2000. Um, yeah, It's just, you know, I'm 60, I'm 63, and uh, my, my family dies yet. Uh, my brother Phil died last year, very while I was in England. I was given a workshop for the IFKA. Or, uh, no, I got the letters wrong. I was given a workshop. And uh, I announced to the group that, you know, people in my family die young. When I came back the next day, um, Dan Cleaver announced that last night my brother died. And uh, I gave the talk, and it was very difficult. And now uh, it's okay for me to say, this: don't share this with anybody in my family, but the other day my daughter Lindsay said uh, that she's pregnant, and we're going to be having a, a third grandchild here pretty soon.
0: Congratulations.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And then I did the math. And I'm like, oh my god, you know,
0: you know, am I going to be around
1: for this little one? And so all these things you and I are talking about became the falling, the tumble, the fall proofing, the flossing the teeth, uh, standing on one foot, uh, get back up. All this stuff you and I are talking about, and it almost seems like we're we're just talking about five sets of two, and you know, getting little kids to swim. No. This stuff becomes real all of a sudden because, you know, I've got an expiration date and so do you, Todd, and so does every listener. And every so often we get reminded of you know how precious life is. And if you can make a difference in one kid a year, man, you made a difference, my friend. Okay. So there you go.
0: Yeah. It's, it's one of your mottos. It's one of your mottos that, uh... I try and live by, especially when you have a tough day at work, you're like, well, did I make a difference? Yes, I did. Okay. It's not that bad.
1: That's our, that's our, that's our family mission statement. Make a difference. And, uh, was I easy to get on this podcast?
0: Very easy. Emailed you and had an instant response.
1: And all we had to do was work out the time zone issue, which is always a big deal. Uh, yeah, because I think this workshop, this, our discussion will make a difference. Our family, uh, motto is it's not where you start it's where you finish and that ties us back to the young man or a young woman who won't floss their teeth you might have been the best and the brightest but i just want to know where you finish you know and i don't want you to be a, a billy joel song you know um there's that great song billy joel has about the baseball player he comes back and glory glory days uh, and I don't want you to be a glory. I don't want you to be glory days. I want you to still be successful in your twenties, thirties, forties, fifties. My first athletes are sneaking up on sixty years of age. Now. Wow, hell no! They're probably there's probably one or two that are sixty.
0: Yes, yes. And uh, it's funny just listening to you say that. Remind of. Uh... A book I've read about a year ago, uh, battle of the tiger him teacher. And they talk about routines and rituals and about teachers. They say, yes, we do sweat the small stuff because sooner or later the little things become the big things. Would you share that name of that book again with me? Yes. It's uh, "The battle of the tiger him teacher. And I'd, I'd recommend it for any coach, uh, anyone who teaches students It's there's a lot of things that like you mentioned about your contrarian approach uh, to the discus. Um, there's a lot of things. The reason why I re- uh, started reading it is because there was a lot of things I was being told in my teacher training and I was thinking, Hmm, this kind of goes against what I'm being told. And I, I kind of agree with this book. Um, so I would highly recommend it. Would you mind? You kind of, we
1: both speak the same language, but I speak American and you speak uh, English. Yes.
0: Would you give me the title of the book one more time? Yep. Yeah. no problem. It's, uh, the battle of the tiger hymn. Say that again, Tiger. Tiger hymn, H Y M N. Oh, Tiger hymn. Okay. Yes. Uh, the Battle of the Tiger Hymn Teacher. Tiger Hymn Teacher. Okay. Um, as you, if you
1: talk to any of my Saint Mary students, the H, the English H, just throws me off more than anything else.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I have a few students who say Heich.
0: Oh yeah, H and H and H is the uh, is the one that I have.
1: I've got one student who spends probably a minute going. <sighs>
0: <laughs> and uh, oh. there's, there's a, I mean, as you said in this sort of uh, our chat pre-podcast, there's a load of questions. But as I said, you've answered them all before, and, uh, you
1: know what, and let's let's do this. Let's uh, you're going to email me for the tumbling thing. I'll send that to yes. you. I want that on the show notes. Uh, I want, I want this book, uh, in the show notes. I'm going to buy it right after we, uh, as soon as we hang up. Okay. Yeah. Um, oh, by the way, that's what I call a shark habit.
0: Yes. I did have a few questions about that, but we'll.
1: For a gentle listener, a shark habit is one bite and it's gone. Uh, when you work with me very often, uh, we'll be on a phone call and i say, hold on because I am instantly doing what I said I was going to do. Uh, that's a shark habit. One bite and it's gone. Um, let's Todd, let's, let's just got a week or two and we'll do it again.
0: Oh, absolute dream. Absolute dream. The only questions in the outro that I had was, uh, oh, if you, yeah, you have a homework to say,
1: you have to call Jack instantly and tell him hello. <laughs> I
0: will. I will. Um, the one, well, a couple of questions just in the outro bit, uh, sure. just cause I like asking coaches this, uh, if you could observe one coach working with their athletes, who would you observe and why?
1: Well, if this was possible, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when uh, Dick Knotmeyer coached me. I'd have loved to have seen that. Uh, he transformed my life, you know. Under his tutelage, I put on 20 kilos in four months, drug-free. Um, but uh, the other coach, you know, there was a, he's an American football coach by the name of Bill Walsh. And I tried to actually meet with him a few times. It never worked out. But uh, he was—they said he could have been a brain surgeon. He was just very smart, very on point. His book, Bill Walsh's, uh, is his total book. Basically, it's a book of checklists from the person to how you answer the phone for the San Francisco 49ers to you know how you what what where the custodians should clean up first. And people go, well, isn't it about a game?
0: Yeah. But you have to have everything in place. It's a brilliant book. Is, good question. Is, it might be Bill Walsh. It might be someone else. Is it either Bill Walsh or uh, Vince Lombardi, The Score Takes Care of Itself? Bill Walsh. Bill Walsh. Yeah. And can't say I've read it, but uh, yeah. that for the Score me- Takes
1: Care of Itself, that's Bill Walsh. And uh, if you can get a book about his time at Stanford, I, I found that to be some really good reading.
0: Um, does, do you have a name for his, uh, you said his time at Stanford? No, nah, nah, sorry. No, nope, that's fine. I that's went
1: fine. to a library one time and I read it one day. That'll tell you either how boring I am or um, how, how delightfully intelligent I am. Yes.
0: <laughs> and uh, if people, in fact, uh, just one question about recommended resources and then where people can find you. So if you had to recommend a resource, a podcast, a book, um, your uh, your individualized yeah, you workouts
1: if you go to YouTube, you type my name and you type in resources. I go through every resource I think you should have. Okay. And I'm not, I mean, just had a guy pull up, look at my house, write some stuff down and drive away. Okay. Sorry. That's kind of of weird. You can't. Okay. One book. You can only get one book. Purposeful Primitive by Marty Gallagher. If you can only get one, because it's got it's got everything, and I think he's a great writer.
0: Perfect. Um, and I'll talk to you for two seconds offline. But uh, just while we're on air, just thank you very much, Dan. It's been absolutely brilliant.
1: Well, thank you, and let's do this again, uh, gentle listener. Thanks for hanging in there for the whole time, and uh, let's do this. You you owe me a favor. Uh, you got to make a difference today uh, somehow make the world a better place. All right? There you go. There's your homework assignment.
0: That's a brilliant way to end it. Thanks very much, Dan. Thank you for listening to episode 24 of the Platform to Perform podcast with myself, Todd Davidson, and today's guest, Dan John. If you've enjoyed the show, then I would be really appreciate it if you would leave a review via your preferred listening platform. And if you're in a position to support the podcast or you simply want access to the educational strength and conditioning content that I've released in the last few months, including 30 lessons of calisthenics kids, bodyweight sessions designed to improve strength, movement skill, and confidence in children, then you can check it out via www.patreon.com forward slash Todd Davidson P2P coaching. Thank you so much for listening, and I will catch you again in the next episode.